The Buddha talks about having suitable companions in the holy life. I don't want to preface it with that so that you don't get any other idea about companionship. Uh, but truly he's a suitable companion in the holy life uh, for me. Because, you know, there's no adage birds of a feather flock together. And so we like to be around people who either like us or are like us. The rest are, you know, you can take them or leave them, but you like ones who like you or who are like you. Birds of a feather flock together. But Panya Deep and I is as different as night and day. We see things from two opposite sides, and it's so wonderful. It's a great training because um, it it not causes, it allows um, me to examine uh, the full scope, a, a fuller scope uh, of things uh, to be constantly uh, not confronted with, given the opportunity <laughs> to look at something from another side. And what that does is it expands your capacity uh, for observation, for awareness, for mindfulness, for patience, for, you know, determining what your real level of intent is, these kinds of things. In this section on the, in the Sudhimag on the taking of a meditation subject, he mentioned the ten impediments. And I usually don't. I usually start from an entirely different place with this. That's why I love this tag team thing. Keeps you on your toes and you have to um, build upon, you know, when you have to build upon the talk uh, that comes previously, how to do that uh, resourcefully uh, in a way that that is useful. Um, And so both of us, only have a very little plan when we start because there is something that is made as we go along. And that depends on what the who we're serving, what the need is, um, what we will what we will make. So he talked about these ten impediments and I was just wondering did as the ten were being read what went through your mind? I mean, um, normally somebody would say, who can remember one? And we could probably remember one. But who said, that's an impediment for me? Good. I see one hand. I see two hands. Okay. So it's wonderful that we do this. You know, otherwise we're just going through some kind of an exercise here. And we walk away knowing intellectually a lot of things, but not being able to use much of it. I, um, when I had a a career, it was in, in investments and, 
and in real estate. And uh, and the people who came to me for investments who had money, you know, they were very good at their jobs, but they didn't have a bit of sense when it came around money. And the ones that I did investments for the most were professors of universities. And they got in the most trouble because they tried to apply um, the same kind of, of uh, they used their faculties in a way that worked for constructing and um, building and opening the minds of the kids around the subject matters that they were specialists in. But when they got into this field that it required you to be to finesse, to be able to dance on a dime, to be able to look and know, you know, what something is, to be able to um factor in or allow for so many unknowns there just wasn't a capacity to do that when they talked about logic and you know what was logical but but we live in a world full of illogical people you know it was something that did not did not work for them so the first lesson I brought over into my Dharma life, not a practice for me, you know, because like I want to play in a real game. So it's not practice for me. But what I brought with me was how to sift through what I hear and pick out what's for me. I start with what's for me right now. The rest I don't throw away, I just sit it right there, not too far. So then when it becomes clear to me that there was something else that I heard that's useful for me, I can reach right there and grab it. You know, it's not too far away. But I start with what jumps up, that's for me. And I start chewing on that, and I start thinking. And in that way... um. This becomes immediate, it becomes relevant, and it becomes the medicine for the sickness that I have. The ones whose symptoms I am feeling right now. I might have a headache and a, and a stomach ache. Which one is hurting the worst, the stomach or the head? Then I'll take something for the head. If I can find one pill that takes care of both of them, i take that one first. If not, I'll take something maybe for the head. But if I was bowling over in cramps for my stomach and my head was hurting too, I'd take something for the stomach. So our practice or our approach uh, to the uprooting of defilements, fetters, the removal of impediments, all of these things, you know, should be approached in that, in that way. As opposed to having like a, a notebook and we like, we got these instructions, punch holes and this and put that in our notebook. And after a while, we have this big notebook out here 
but we have nothing in here. Nothing that speaks to us in the moment when we need it. I like that Christian scripture said that thy word have I hid in my heart that I and the way the scripture went that I might not sin against you. Thy word, O oh Lord, have I hid in my heart that I might not sin. So I take these words and I hide them in my heart so that when I'm about to commit, you know, an egregious act, firstly against myself and then against others, it can rise up. Now, sometimes it rises slow and I move fast, which means like I'm out the gate before it it got to a cognitive awareness, like like I have something in my uh, tool bag here that I can use. So <laughs> sometimes it gets a little bit ahead of, and you know, my actions get a little bit ahead of the rising up. So, but that's okay, you know. When it comes up, then I just I look at it then. But. If we don't hide anything there, there will be nothing to rise up. So as he went through the impediments, I was listening intently to see what I could uh, make an active practice of laying down right at this moment that created more space and as he went through the 10 I was like down with that I got that one take it oh, need to work on that one a little bit uh, you know. and then before we went in I took those that were an impediment for me and I made an absolute decision that even if I couldn't lay them down forever, if I had some idea that laying down or that severing meant cutting off, because that is what sever means, cut off. But it doesn't necessarily mean cut off in the way that we think it means. If we read further in this section on the ten impediments, he starts to give examples of people who do certain things. And He would say, if he was this way, let's say he went to a place and it was warm and toasty, like let's just say the impediment, because I don't want to read this, because I want to take us back in. Let's say that the impediment was he likes to be um, comfortable, right? And so when he's in a place that's not so comfortable, you know, it says that uh, desire for an impediment 
I mean, for comfort, it's an impediment. Like, you know, like you should abandon it. And so you take them in a place and everything's soft and cushy. And he's thinking, oh, yeah, just right. You know. He says, then that one, that's an impediment. If when you take him to a place where it's hard, he says, well, perhaps the next place we'll go will be like the first one, soft and cushy. You know, there's a complaint with this one. This one's too hard. He says, but even if you have a preference and soft and cushy is it, then when you get to the one that's hard, it's just hard. You know. He said then to that one, desiring the soft and cushy is no impediment because if he has it, he'll take it. If he doesn't, no problem. So we have to know when something and he said, and in that one, then, he can sit in the cushy chair because it's really no impediment for him. Do you understand the difference? And so even when we have an impediment, that is one way we can work at reducing the impediment. He talks about one who you know, uh, when he talks about who likes books, he's talking about the one who's in charge of the, you know, the scriptures, it says, or one who keeps the, I don't know, library, or, uh, you know how people are about their books, though. Uh, I love books. And I have, I don't know, maybe ten times as many it's what's in the library. Wouldn't you say we have about that many in the hermitage? You know, and I like cherry picking what I'll bring over and put in the more public library because I want to make sure that they don't accidentally leave because lots of times, um, I'm sorry, they have to prepare lunch. You would want them. Um, lots of times people borrow the books that we ask to ask you to not take and then the book is gone when I go to use it for research or you know to be honest not for research just because I like the book and I just want to keep the book even if I never even read the book again I'm just going to be honest okay. so we have to know when we've moved from a neutral ground to where there's some grasping or there's some attachment. These, these, this kind of thing is a sneaky little thing. And so we have to be very watchful so that we can know that. And so my objective then is to take whatever to come to where I understand that it's okay to have something, but that we don't have to build a preference around it. Then we can enjoy things. So I see a lot of people on this path who like almost flagellating themselves to trying to do these things, these hard things, because they uh, have a partial understanding 
of what it is. Panyadipa says it all the time. It's not the thing. It's the grasping around it. The craving for it is not the thing at all. And so we think we have to get rid of this or get rid of that. But it's just switching our focus just a little bit to the left or to the right and seeing that the danger is in the grasping around the constant craving for. So, the Buddha says that before we can even meditate, we have to set aside covetousness and grief for the world. And sometimes before we can do that, in reality, we have to get into like a little soft space to be willing to do that. So one plays on the other. So right here, you know, we might say that to meditate, there's certain conditions of platform that has to be established. It means that you have already willingly or by crushing mind with mind, abandon or set aside covetousness and grief for the world. Like whatever issues I had coming in, now is not the time. So I won't use this time of silence to sit and fiddle with that in my head. That's not my job at this time. It's not what I'm taking up at this time. If I don't, then the mind will tend to tend to them during this time. So we're making a decision that I'll pick that up later, but for now, All of the, if there are any thoughts, because he talks about applied and sustained thought, they will only be thoughts relevant to what I'm doing now. And one way that we can get rid of a thought is we can replace it with another thought. So I might have to have my arsenal of, I mean, that's why he gave us so many uh, examples. Breathing in, you know, I train in joy. Breathing out, I train in joy. Breathing in, I train in renunciation. Breathing out, I train in renunciation. He, he gave us ways, if we have a monkey mind, or if we have one that's grasping at thoughts, he gave us some thoughts that we could actually use that deals with the the job at hand, the you know, that's what we're trying to do. So that's another way you can kind of work with distracting thoughts. This work with thoughts that are pertinent to what you're trying to accomplish. And uh, it'll be almost like a hypnosis. Like it will now allow you to concentrate more deeply at what you're looking at itself. <laughs> um, okay. So 
we want to go back in again this time. Okay, so um, I'd like to add three things. Having made the decision to set aside covetousness for the world. Right now I'm not concerned about anything else except for exactly what I'm doing here. Training the mind to just stay where I focus it. Allowing it to power down and becoming empty. He said that we can come to the absolute stilling of thought. It doesn't mean that we have now just become an unconscious blob. But that there is nothing in the external world that arouses, that causes us to go out and grasp around or latch on to. That's all. We can just keep it simple. And this will become because, you know, concentration is not the end game. That's not the goal line, you know. That's just a tool that's getting us where we're going, so we don't have to get too caught up in it. But we do have to, you know, when you're supposed to go right, you know, you can't be going left. So just thinking of it in that way, you know, it's no big deal. Just So we don't have to, like, press and crush to get into concentration, you know. It's just, just go that way, something like that. So, abandoning covetousness for the world. The second is abandoning grief for the world, you know. Um, Sometimes we... There's an old song about sometimes we have trouble in this life. Indeed, we do. Um, And in the next 15 or 20 minutes, there's a good chance that that's not going to be rectified, fixed, whatever's broken, you know. Uh, So we can, like, just come come back for it in 20 minutes. So for now, we're just going to set it aside. The third thing is not even thinking, changing our thinking about this notion of distracting thoughts. Because when I think of a distraction, I think about something that draws my attention away. But if I'm intent, you know, like when you're intent on anything, intent on a person, if you're intent on watching the movie you're watching, if you're intent on listening uh, to what I'm saying and we're having a conversation, there is coexisting with it a certain capacity to stick. Now, if I'm half interested in you, and not interested at all in what you're talking about, then it's a good idea. Uh, it's a good notion, a good bet that I'm only going to be half halfway with you. you know? 
So sometimes in meditation it's like that. I mean, like we're doing this thing, you know, you know, but I'm only halfway with it. So, um, I mean, there have been times I've been so intent in, you know, watching something or listening to something that an intrusion came in and it like just, I didn't even detect it. You know, phone rang, I didn't even, I didn't, I didn't even hear it. And when I did hear it, it was like, darn, not now. You know, because I did not want to leave. What I was grokking, that's what one of my teachers used to use, Bernie, he called it grokking. I didn't want to leave what I was grokking with. You know, I pulled away, you know, haltingly and uh, walking that way to get it, but still like looking right there. So it's kind of like that. But that's because I was really, <laughs> no fake out, I was really interested I was really intent upon an engagement. So it has to get like that for you. But I tell you, when it gets like that for you, no, that's when you're taking everything you have to buy it because you see it as a precious field. And this comes, you know, sometimes we we really have that, but we haven't known quite how to characterize it or how to look it at it in a way that it works for us. So, I likened it to um, being with a lover. You all go out to dinner and you're sitting across the table as the um, candle is lit and they have that flower water on the table and this is this nice sweet setting and you all are having this deep conversation and people are talking all around you in the restaurant but you are like focused right there it's funny the things that we give up but when we find something more precious we can remember those things and they actually aid us in how to capture what is precious to us. So I used to like the color red, you know, and there was this song that came out, Lady in Red, she's dancing with me, cheek to cheek. Nobody here, just, you know, whatever the rest of the song was. And when that song came out, I loved that song. But then my husband bought me a red dress. And I loved the song even more. And I loved that red dress. And I loved him. When you put those three together, it was powerful. And so when I started trying to meditate, and you could tell from my colorful the colorful ways that I talk like I could like just get far out and I can get easily distracted and things like that so I had to find the things that had been meaningful to me along the way and I overlaid them on this part of the practice and that's what allowed me you know to develop the kind of relationship with it that I had developed with other things in the world when they were important.
to me. So just use that however you can as we go back again. Oh, the fourth thing I want to say is please be comfortable. Um, if you need to sit in a chair, sit in a chair. If you need to move, move. When And if you want to go down, go down. When I sit in a chair, I'm somewhat more comfortable, but my body information feed gets a little messed up. Because when I sit in a chair, it doesn't know what Panyawadi wants to do, whether she wants to meditate now, whether she wants, you know, to have a conversation, read a book, or it just doesn't know. Uh, when I sit on a cushion, it, there's no doubt. What and and so my whole body like kind of helps me with that, you know. So find what's comfortable for you. But if you have to get up and move because you think that right now I'm perfectly balanced, but as I start settling down, I uh uh-uh, I'm twisted. Then don't think can't move, can't move, can't move. Just untwist. Don't give it any time and energy. Just make that correction. And stay with the program. Stay with what you're doing. I want you to have these permissions. When there was one other instruction. I'll give you this one standing up because I have a cramp in my calf. (laughs) Okay. If you would think that it's not that I have distracting thoughts, but that um, I wasn't grokking with my object, it would aid you. Because it's not really that the mind was pulled away. It just got bored. And so it went looking for something else. You know, it's very good at its job. At its job. It does what it does. It investigates things. And it, it, this doesn't hold my attention. Then it just goes, mind just goes look for something else. You know. So that should be an empowerment to you. That it's not that you can't control this unruly mind and that these things come in, these distracting thoughts come in and they're like taking you over. It's not that way at all. It's that you went looking for something else. And so you do absolutely have control over that. Ah, okay. Okay, so... Let's go back again. So what hindered you in this sitting? So what would an antidote for sloth and torpor be? Um, dialogue or, or, or narration within your head a little bit perhaps for a moment or two to bring yourself to a little focus, other thought, back onto the object. Okay, I go with the first two. Um, 
You know, because this, there's, there's an energetic principle running through everything. Yeah. So, so a lot of this is a balancing act. You know, if, if I'm, um, if I'm getting tired or sleepy or dull, you know, and then he's absolutely right. We need to invigorate ourselves. So you can just get up or walk around. Could wear your face. The Buddha said, even go wash your face if you need to. You know, so what? Oh, you know, you can't even move in the meditation hall. The thought of getting up and going to wash your face, that's like, say it ain't so, Buddha. You know, I was, uh, you know, and so, so, um, it's whatever brings you back to wake, wakefulness, you know. You might, if we were going to use your third suggestion, you might recollect the purpose for which you were doing this, you know, but, I would sort of, well, you know, I guess I I could even I could even accept that as a, as a means. Yes, very good. Yes, did you want to say something else? Uh, during during my meditation, I actually I, I started to get uncomfortable, lose blood to my toes. So I'm like, oh, I gotta kind of adjust myself. But the whole thing was kind of getting into discomfort and sloth and torpor, and I needed something, and I just dropped my judgment of what I thought I should do because something intuitively said kneel up and I just rather than standing rather than doing anything I've ever done before I just kneeled like this which was the perfect thing it was just enough muscle engagement to bring me back to wakefulness to be really awake again to be very comfortable again to readjust everything down there and then a minute or two later I settled right back down comfortably I mean and a lot of what my problem was up until that point was giving myself the permission to just go ahead and listen to what I intuitively wanted to do, because I thought, oh, I have to stay still, I have to be quiet, I have to, I have to, I have to. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't always listen to your I have tos. Yeah, very good. Thank you. Anyone else who had rest? Who was restless? Anyone? Mm-hmm. So restlessness. What? Would be an antidote for restlessness. Experience restlessness on this sit, but in the past when I have been experiencing restlessness, I've shifted over to more of a big mind meditation, being in in a larger space, and somehow I don't even understand how that works. But I've used it a number of times, and it seems to bring me more into my center. Mm-hmm. So that larger space, like when something starts, you know, restlessness, something gets on your mind, you know, and uh, something that comes with that is uh, is uh, worry or it gets, you know, like the big mind that you were speaking of, that big space takes what fills that little space, and when it's, Placed into this big space, it's only this big, you see, and so now it falls back into, into, um, you know, obscurity, into oblivion. It gets rolled, rolled back down into its little, its little, its, its little space. Panyadeep, I saw you move. You wanted to say something. I think for me, uh, when there's a restless or wandering, I just try to anchor back into the feeling of why I'm sitting. And often the phrase, I love you, you know, I just anchor on that. I try to just feel that sense of love. 
you know, enjoy. And that helps. That's good, finding an anchor, you know. Uh, And it could be a a mental feeling anchor, or it could be a bodily feeling anchor, you know. You can bring your mind back to, like, your sits bones, you know, speaking of a bodily way. Or, like he says, bringing yourself back to your to your heartful, to your heartfulness. Yeah. That's really good. Thank you. Any other? Okay, so, I mean, there was no ill will going on, right? So that one's out. Yeah. It's, yeah. <laughs> Oh, speaking of that, um, you know, I, some of you may be wondering what happens when people come day after tomorrow and they haven't done all of these, you know, um, preliminary practices, step-by-step, gradual deepening, then what's going to happen? Well, you see, um, when we embody these principles, when we embody these truths, they're still present with us. So when people come in, there is that ground that we have established. And if we've done a good job just with ourselves, you know, then when they come in, they all tigers get subdued. <laughs> and they will and they will fall right in there. They may have missed the benefit of some of the little cues that they can take take home with them. But certainly they can experience something. I can tell you for a fact that a direct experience is more than an intellectual exercise. So to directly experience something is to know it, you know. Um, And so the Buddha moves us towards this direct experience. Here's here's the thing. Um, Who felt, isn't it amazing that when we, move to focus and concentrate, there's something that happens right here that takes us back out, and then everything ends up being within the scope. But yet nothing is pulling or tugging. So it allows you to sit here with a greater awareness of everything without anything without there needing to be a, a, a directed grab towards or pull towards anything. So you're actually, your field of experience expands to the extent that you contract your uh, sense gates or, or bases. So that's, yeah, you know, and so that's the whole thing about drawing in the senses. We, we uh, lose to gain, you know, and as we pull them in, uh, we become, at a certain point, more aware of everything. It's kind of like um, how love constrains in a certain way. It constrains us, but at the same time, it gives us a freedom to go magnanimous, you know. Uh, so as we enter into this place, the stiller and stiller we become, it's like I'm going to 
become one with everything. You know, we actually do, and it moves from a, a, you know, no longer need talking points. That's what I'm saying. Uh, We don't need talking points. Suddenly, we become, or gradually, we become one with everything. There is a certain awareness that moves out from us. Now, who's moving out? Is it Paniwadi moving out? The less uh, there is this awareness of a Paniwadi, the more there is a beingness that uh, the more it comes into our conscious awareness that there is a beingness that is not individuated and defined, nor can be. So when he talks about no self or non-self, you know, if we think in these terms, we, we could catch it a little bit, a little bit better. Yeah, because actually when I'm talking about me, I'm talking about, you know, all of my perceptions and I'm talking about all of my, yeah, it's not that, it's not any of that. So there is an, uh, something, it's just not this that has been fabricated from a bunch of parts that we call I. It's like that. And in becoming undefined and undifferentiated in that way, we, um, that is the waking up. You know, the word, words wake up don't even really, don't even really do it. You know, but that sounds, uh, better to intellectuals than getting enlightened. You know, they're, they're talking about enlightenment or something. So they like waking up. <laughs> um, so don't don't pick any words. Just do and see what and see what happens and and uh, experience something and know something. We're limited. The reason why the Buddha recommends that we uh, shut the apertures is because of their limited scope. That's all. And so we're withdrawing these senses that connect us in particular ways and familiar ways with the outer world. But as we withdraw that, we find that there's so many uh, faculties that we possess that I won't say they haven't been activated, but we don't know that they're working. We don't know that they're there. We don't know how to use them, make use of them. And so while we're talking about awakening and enlightenment and off the will of samsara and you know and all of these kinds of things, it's when our um when the mind uproots the fabrications. That's the erasure. So we're still holding on to concepts in the mind. That's why he said, like, coming to the absolute stilling of thought 
Because until I come to that place, anything that I see, hear, smell, taste, touch, uh, or think is going to be evaluated by, named by, organized and categorized by the thoughts I already have. And in that way, I won't even be able to apprehend what is really there. And so, when we really start to get this, it becomes easier and easier. I know exactly. The one I was was looking at, I didn't hear about skeptical doubt, doubt in the process, doubt in maybe the teaching, doubt in my ability to do something, doubt, am I doing it right? And mostly doubt as to what I'm, what am I what am I doing right now? What 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 am I supposed what, what am I supposed to be doing? Nothing. Just sitting here laying down. Laying down thought, laying down preferences. Just sitting here divesting ourselves. At this stage this is what we're doing. It's not what we're doing all the time, we're doing different things at different times. But this right here, right now. It's what, what we're doing. Until we can get so comfortable just sitting here. And it's like uh, you can be directing your vision, you know, looking right out that window. But unless your eyes are not working properly, you know, you'll have a peripheral vision that will fill in this field, right? So it gets to be something like that. The Buddha's constantly talking about things, you know, and you have to kind of figure out what it means when he talks about this 360-degree vision, like in front of you, behind you, to the left, the right, the four cardinal directions above and beneath. You know, if you get this idea of an expansion and a, and a clarity, that's 360 degrees. You know, and then you'll find you'll use a fraction of your of your energy, you know, at, at handling things. That's that's one of the benefits here and now. You know, your capacity will increase to be able to take care of things. You know, and you can be focused right here and you catch that right there. And you don't even have to leave right here. You know, you, you just catch that. You could handle it with a word or with a, you know, it's a so our capacity to be useful, just in a, in, a, in a very pragmatic sense, increases. We expend less energy when we're taking care of something. You know, because we like drama to go with it. But the more you sit in these spaces, the less of you is in your mind. So you stop thinking so much and seeing so much and feeling so much and understanding so much from an egocentric place because that's where that's where you know all of our fuel goes you know and and so there is more fuel available so he's always talking about for our happiness and for the happiness of others, so there's got to be. But yet, he's talking about an ultimate goal. So it's not like our happiness and the happiness of others is on this side, go left, and you know the ultimate goal is to the right. 
No, they're lined up. So you have to travel through those spaces to get to the ultimate goal. If you don't, you're like on a sidetrack. And what you're reaching for, you will not find. We tend to believe in all that we think. Imagining patterns in all that we see. We try to find meaning in everything. But what do we really know? Just look a little deeper. Question your thoughts. You know that this thinking ain't all that we've got. There's a truer awareness when the thinking subsides, letting go of ourselves, closing our eyes. It's in stillness the truth abides. It's in stillness the truth abides. There's really really know you these bodies are made up of bones and sinew but open it up and you won't find you so what do we really know just look a little deeper question your thoughts you know that this thinking ain't all There's a truer awareness when the thinking subsides, letting go of ourselves, closing our eyes. It's in stillness the truth abides. It's in stillness the truth abides. Just specks of stardust all coated with life. Our wisdom's been sleeping, that's why it's a fight. Wake up to that house builder telling us lies about what we really know. Just look a little deeper, question your thoughts. You know that this thinking ain't all that we've got. There's a truer awareness when the thinking subsides, letting go of ourselves, closing our eyes. It's in stillness the truth abides. It's in stillness the truth abides. It's in stillness the truth.